July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles, and I've watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research, and I know there is so much more to the story that has never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. So when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public in a series of podcast episodes, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into seasons. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hello, Rick. So at the end of season six, it was January 2007. You had a ship reserved for another expedition, but you weren't able to raise the money for the required payment, and the charter had to be canceled. So then what happened? Well, yeah. Um... We had good fundraising prospects, but we ran out of time. We had to cancel the charter contract and eat the $6,000 deposit. That must have hurt. That hurt. But, you know, expeditions are like politics. They're the art of the possible. <laughs> the 2007 Niku 5 expedition, as originally planned, gave us a full three weeks. That's 21 days on the island. But that reach proved to be beyond our grasp. Uh. We, we just couldn't handle that much. The, the money was too much. We looked into several options. Other boats, is there another way to do this? A less expensive boat? But everything we came up with was not acceptable. It just wasn't going to work. So we ended up renegotiating with Naya. They were so great. They wanted to help us, but it had to make sense for them, too. Sure. So we, what we came up with was a shorter charter that would give us a 17-day stay at NICU instead of the 21. That's not a big difference, though. Did that make that much difference in what it would cost? It made quite a bit of difference in in the price, those, huh. th those days. And what also made a difference was they were able to to tack our trip onto the start of another charter oh. they would go on and do. So we would meet Naya in Fiji okay. on July 14th mm. and then make the five-day, thousand-mile voyage to Nikko. And then on August 4th, we would leave Nikko. But instead of heading back to Fiji, 
we would take a, a three-day, 600-mile trip down to Apia, Samoa, where we we would catch a commercial flight to Fiji. Oh. And from there home. And Naya would continue on to Tonga, another island group down that way, for a whale-watching charter they already had booked. Oh, I see. So it, it all worked out. And with more time to raise money, we were able to meet the $162,000 charter cost by uh, April 3rd. Oh, great. So we were good. Now, And it wasn't that much different time on the island. so Not that much, uh, but we had a lot to do. We, we had four main objectives for what we wanted to do on the island. Expand and map the seventh site, the, the place where we were increasingly sure that the bones had been found in 1940 and was the castaway campsite. You had found a lot of things there. We'd we'd found enough there to convince us that we had the right spot, but there was much more we we needed to do there. We wanted to expand it, and we wanted to map it in detail. Hmm. Then we wanted to clear and search what we refer to as the old village back up at the other end of the island. Right. Because this, what we came to call the Wheel of Fortune, that had been seen in 2002. And we sent a special expedition out there to relocate, to see if it was still there in 2003, but it wasn't. Seemed to be a wheel from the airplane, but it was gone because of a big storm. Oh, the thing that was found uh, that someone else identified, another expedition had identified in the water. The New England Aquarium had been out there doing coral research. And Greg Stone, the leader of that expedition, had seen this what looked like an airplane wheel to wow. him in the main passage. But then when we went back out there to look for it, it was gone. But right. our team did find more of the little structures that we had been calling dados, but Len figured out that they're really probably heat shields from the inside of the airplane right. to, to protect the fuel lines from the heater ducts that ran along the wall of the cabin. Right. So... We wanted to really search that whole area. Maybe the wheel was in there someplace, been washed in there, and there should be more of these heat shields in there. So we wanted to really do a detailed search of the old village. Hmm. Then we also wanted to do a taphonomy experiment. Taphonomy is is how things degrade, break down, rot, if you will. Oh, interesting. And... In the, the, on the 2001 trip, our forensic anthropologist and osteologist, bone lady, Cara Burns, had done an experiment with a lamb shoulder. Oh, right. And, and the crabs. that had gone away in just a few days, and the crabs had carried off the bones. We said, okay, so now we know that crabs really go after things like this, and they go off with the bones. Where do they go with them? because that will might give us a hint on where we should look at the seven site for bones that may have survived since 1937. You know, only a partial skeleton was found in 1940. Right. So how long does it take for crabs to reduce a carcass to a, a skeleton? And where do crabs go with bones? We wanted to ask those questions. Carr wanted to. Okay. And then the other thing we needed to do is map the reef surface 
where the airplane landed and remained for several days sending radio distress calls. But to do that, she had to be able to run one of the engines, the right-hand engine, with a generator to recharge the battery that the radio relied on. Right. But in order to run the engine, the propeller has to clear. You can't have the tip of the propeller hitting the water. And the tide comes in and the tide goes out, so the water level on the reef changes. So we had to know, and we, we wanted to ask the question, do the credible post-loss radio transmissions match the time when the water level on the reef would be low enough for her to run an engine? She could use the radio without running an engine, but that would be draining down the battery. And she needs that battery to start the engine. Right. So she'd be crazy to, to use the battery without first starting the engine and get it generating. Right. And we also had wondered whether she would have enough fuel to run the engine enough to keep the battery charged up for the nights that we know this, this happened. And what we were really doing was verifying something that her technical advisor, Paul Mance, had told the press back in 1937. And they were asking this, this same question back then, right. because Mance thought she might be on an island sending these radio calls. And the question was, well, does she have enough fuel to do that? And what he said to the reporter was, yes, she can run that engine at 800 RPM, and that is enough to get the battery charging, and she's only going to burn six gallons an hour if she does that, which gives her enough fuel to do that that for that length of time. Yeah. Well, we wanted to verify that. There's a company in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, that uh, overhauls and... uh, services the same kind of engine that Earhart had on her airplane. Those Pratt & Whitney R 1340 radial engines are still in use on on crop dusters mostly. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so these guys really know that engine. And I talked to them. Oh, they must have been interested to talk to you. That must have been fascinating. Yeah, they were fascinated. Yeah. And I said, we need to find out if this is true. We had to know what kind of generator she had on the engine, but fortunately we had that information. It was an Eclipse 5 generator, (laughs) and they had one. Wow. So we rigged up an R1340 with an Eclipse 5 generator and put it on a test stand and ran that in a series of tests on it at various settings, and we, we filmed the whole thing. And, yep, absolutely right. At 800 (laughs) RPM, the... uh, the battery charge kicks in, and you're burning six gallons an hour. Wow. So, boom. Okay. So we know that's true. <laughs> and you knew how much fuel she had left or mass? Well, we, no, we don't know for sure, but we know how much she must have had. Right, by the time. And we know how much she should have had right. based on the <laughs> uh, fuel management profiles that Kelly Johnson at at uh, Lockheed had given her uh, and all if she had followed Johnson's profile which is no reason to think she wouldn't she should have had x gallons of fuel uh, for x number of hours and so forth we had it all worked out but we had to know if the water level on the reef is is was uh, low enough for her to run that engine at the time when the more credible 
radio calls were heard. Oh, good point. So, and, and they have those records where you could calculate well, those records? Well, man, that was a 12-year study that we did of, first of all, assembling all of the known alleged post-loss receptions from Earhart. Every radio reception, and this is, this is from the, the radio logs of the Itasca, from the uh, U.S. Navy records, the, um, the, the Coast Guard records in Hawaii, other foreign radio stations. And Betty. And, oh, and Betty. Yeah. And, and <laughs> she had the, accurate the, logs. The, the other people around the U.S. who said they heard Earhart. Yeah. But there were also other people that we had looked at and said, no, this can't be right. Because if somebody is saying they heard something on a frequency that is neither one of her primary frequencies or is not a harmonic, there's no way that could be right. from Earhart. And if somebody said they heard a signal where she says, uh, we're drifting, floating, water rising. No, she can't transmit it if, if she's floating and drifting. We know huh. that. So we had dis we had distilled... 130 some alleged calls down to 57 calls that ah. are credible. It's a, meaning we can't explain these calls unless it was that airplane on that island okay. at that time. So those are credible. But to test that hypothesis, the water level's got to be right. And how could you get it exactly on that island that's remote? And <laughs> well, that, that that was the trick. We we had to come up with a way to do that. So our our planning for this expedition included uh, several technology technological innovations. We'll call them based on our experience on the island and what we saw was was needed. Okay. So part of the plan for Niku 5 was to get aerial photography of the island. We'd, we'd always wanted to, to get good low-altitude aerial photography. I mean, oh. that, that, this is something that really helps. Before drones and GoPros. Right. <laughs> yes. Before, How spoiled we are. Before the, we're talking, you know, okay. So <laughs> in 1991, we, we put a video camera on a kite. And flew the kite and took video. How did that go? Well, it was a real good way to make yourself airsick, just watching the video. <laughs> oh, and God. use a good lose a good video camera Whoa. potentially. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> that didn't work. Uh. Then ninety seven, <laughs> we said, "All right, we'll bring an ultralight aircraft and we'll fly over the island and look." But ninety seven was the year of the storms, oh, right. and we never even got the ultralight off the boat oh. it stayed locked down on the boat for the whole <laughs> trip and still suffered some damage oh, then in 2001 we had that surprise helicopter ride around the island oh, right where the right. helicopter shows up but now for the first time we've got a really good video tour of the island but that's not detailed specific site information that was good general information and about well, that there was so much you didn't know then yeah and then uh, around that time, we got the first satellite photos of the island, ah. and that was great to have. But a 
again, you don't get enough resolution of particular sites for detailed research. So, in 2007, we heard of and connected with the people who had developed something called kite aerial photography. And this isn't slapping a camera on a kite. Kite aerial photography is an ingenious, uh, specialized technology. You have a digital camera and you mount it on a little rotating platform that's suspended from the kite string, not the kite itself. And that takes out a lot of the, the, oh, the motion huh. the waving around. And you just launch this thing and get the set, set the digital camera running to take a picture every five seconds. So, so you're getting a, still shots. You're getting still shots. But still every five seconds. Every five seconds, it click, click. Click, yeah. click, and it just runs and runs and you run on a rotating platform and you run this thing up for as long as you want to you bring it back down and what you have are hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of photographs and you go through those and say, okay this i want this one i want this one oh. i want this one and you you're gonna get what you want it just you're gonna get a lot of ones you don't want sure. but that's okay Yes, and they're digital. So they and they're digital, yeah, that's so good. that's fine. And, and then you can take several of those, if you want to, and stitch them together to create panorama views. Mm. So it was really a, a great... Yeah, how interesting. That eliminated... It was, it was a great technology. A bit cumbersome. You've got to have transporting these kites in big tubes and stuff. And it took a lot of training. It's not something you do on the fly. And so in the run-up to the expedition, we had training sessions where we're flying the kites and we're running the camera and we're, we're practicing uh, using this, this technology. And of course now, as you say, <laughs> drones have made it an obsolete, it's kind of like <laughs> zeppelins are kind of a lost <laughs> right. technology now. I mean, yes, know. but still an interesting oh, stop gap. I still use those, those photographs and research. They're, yeah. they're wonderful. Yeah, I bet. All right. So we were going to do CAP, K-A-P, Kite Aerial Photography. We needed a better way to cut the scabola, this pernicious undergrowth at the seventh site that's, right. that's so difficult. You've got to clear it away so that you can do metal detecting and archaeology and so forth. And walking. I and mean, just, really. just moving around. <laughs> I mean, you, like... You've got to get rid of this stuff. And we had been using machetes, bush knives. Which is crazy. It's... Everybody walking around swinging those Well, it, it's hard work and it's dangerous. Yeah. It really is. Mm. One of our people came up with an idea that we might be able to use pneumatic loppers. These are like uh, tree trimming scissors, really, on a long pole. So a distance from you. Yeah. Do but, they were they in use already? I yeah, mean, are there oh, yeah, some that yeah, are? Yeah, they were commercially available, huh. but you needed um, an air source. An, an air source, yeah. a compressed air source, hmm. and uh, that was going to be pretty awkward to. Do a gasoline-powered, um, what do you call it? Compressor. Compressor. Right. Yeah, uh, on the on the island. So let's attach them to a scuba tank. Oh, what a great because idea! Because Naya's set up to recharge scuba tanks. They have <laughs> tanks, and they have 
they're set up to carry them. Yeah, yeah. and you can carry them. They're heavy, yeah. but it's not as bad as a gasoline-powered compressor. And But we had to modify the, the loppers to be powered by the scuba tanks. Yeah, and we had to do that, and we had to test them and learn how to use them. But that seemed like it would be a good idea. Another thing we wanted to do is find a better way to search for the for teeth. Now, there was a hole at the seven site where the skull that had been found had been buried uh. and then later dug up. And sent to Fiji right. and measured and so forth. So how did the skull get to where it was to be found and then buried? The um, Gilbertese work party who found the skull did not find the other bones. They found only a skull. Uh. So somehow the skull was some distance from the skeleton because they, they never saw the skeleton. Wow. And well, how, that, how many years was that after she was lost? Well, the, the, the skull was found in April of 40, and she okay, disappeared so in July of 37. Yeah. So you're talking three years. Yeah, right? okay. So how does the skull get from the rest of the skeleton to where it was found and then buried? Well, the hole is downhill. It's a mild hill, but it's downhill mm. from the spot where... We reasoned based on the description. Under on the bo the body was found under a wren tree, and there was still a wren tree there. Uh, okay, so if the body's up here under the wren tree, and the skull was found down buried down here, it probably it probably rolled down the hill. Sure, you know, heads will roll. Right. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I've never thought about it in that. Light, and but, yeah. in rolling, a skull might shed some teeth. Yeah. Okay. You want so teeth? So you had a path. Yeah. You want teeth because teeth are a great source of DNA if you can find uh, them. Hmm. You can get into the inter the right. dentin in the t tooth, and it's a great reservoir for DNA. Hmm. But teeth are almost impossible to distinguish from the coral rubble that oh, is the surface of the site. Hmm. However, teeth fluoresce. They glow under ultraviolet light. Oh. Coral rubble does not. Well, that's interesting. So we figured we could search for teeth with ultraviolet light. But you can't do that during the day because of the ambient light. And the crabs make staying at the site at night problematic, to put it that way. <laughs> we learned that. So John Klaus, uh, one of our um, veteran team members, invented a device what we could use to scan with UV, ultraviolet light, in the daytime. Oh. It, it was fairly simple. It was an aluminum, almost cone-shaped box with flat sides, but it was big at one end and small at the top end. And you, just like a, a viewer that you put your eyes on. And so it, it would create darkness over a particular area and you just put it and, on and, the ground and and you, we, there's a ultraviolet light mounted in there oh, wow. and you could just put it down on the ground put your eyes down on the top of it turn the light on see if anything glows nothing and you move it and so on. so that seemed like it might be a, a good way 
to look for teeth. Hmm. So that did was you test it here before you went? Pardon? I mean, did you test it before you went? Oh yeah, John. John yeah. tested it, and, and it, there it, were... it worked great. Okay. Okay. Provided there were teeth to see. Exactly. But... Right. Okay. And one of the things we really wanted to do at the seven site, we're, we're now going to do much more clearing and do some detailed archaeology. You've got to be able to shoot in your finds, your hits, and your uh, features. And to do that, you've, you've got to establish a datum point and then measure the distance and azimuth direction from that data point. You, you've got to have a data point that you can identify on a photograph, like an, an aerial photo. So we're, we're going to get a kite aerial photograph of the seven site oh. with, with the kite. We can look down right on the seven site and get a good aerial photograph after we've cleared away the, the scavola. Right. And then we find a feature that we can identify on the ground that we can see in the photograph. Okay. And that's our datum point. That's our starting point. So uh, were you going to print that photograph from the yeah. camera? You could do that on the, oh, on it, the Naya? I, I had an office set up in my cabin on <laughs> Naya with a, a computer and a printer. And, oh, my. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. So now the, the old-fashioned way of doing this is you stamp at your datum point with a handheld compass and you, you sight down the compass right. to somebody that's standing kind at the, like the site you want to um, register. And you get the, the compass heading and then you run out of physical tape. And you say, oh, this is uh, 23 meters. Mm. From the... But that's... Tedious. It's tedious and it's imprecise. And we were able to get a surveying company in Delaware to let us borrow something called a, a Sokia XRS Robotic Total Station. Hmm. This is a, a professional surveying device, you know, on a tripod and with an infrared rangefinder. And once you get it programmed just right, you can, and, and you have somebody stand at the target site with a range pole that has an infrared reflector on it. Uh. And you, you hit that with the uh, XRS, and uh, it'll read out exactly where you are. So okay, wow. So now that, we're high tech. That's man. great. We're, yes, this this is professional. So of course, I had to learn how to use this thing, <laughs> which programming it was was not easy. Gosh, but we had the book too. Yeah, <laughs> and we had a satellite phone. And I said, "Hello, if I really get stuck, I got." I mean, call. people go to school for this. For oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a lot to yeah. prepare for. Okay. Oh, These... so you could call. The, I, I, the... Yeah. If I really got stuck, and I end up. Did you? Oh God, <laughs> yes. Um, uh. but yeah. So we're we're getting all this technology sorted out and ready to go and trained up on it. Uh, those are all good ways to deal with the seven site. You know, clear the scavola and get the kite photography and, and map the thing. But the old village uh, search, there was no way to apply high technology to that. That area is naturalized coconut jungle, and the ground is just solid with old coconuts. Oh, no. It's like a field of bowling balls. <laughs> and, 
The only way to deal with that is to go in there with some big tarps and put the old coconuts on the tarp and haul them away to oh make gosh. a big pile. And that's just plain hard work. Really? But we accept. Okay, that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to do the old village. Of course, once we do the old, we clear it and we uh, search it with metal detectors and stuff. Mm-hmm. If we find stuff, we can shoot them in with our XRS stuff. You know, <laughs> right. Establish that, okay. Hmm. Uh, then there was the taphonomy experiment. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Yeah, uh, Carr really wanted to, to find out how long does it take the crabs to reduce a full carcass to uh, just a skeleton. And then when they're down to just bones, and, and the bones have separated into individual bones, and the crabs go off of them, where do they go with them? Right. Do they take them down into a burrow? What do they do? <laughs> okay, well, how, how do you do that? First of all, you've got to have a carcass. Now, I asked for volunteers, <laughs> but nobody came forward. So we um, uh, do what is typically done in that kind of research. We want to use a pig. Hmm. Yeah. Now, so you brought a pig? What we brought was a pig, uh, a, a pig carcass that had already had most of the meat taken off. So we're down to a skeleton with still lots, lots of meat on the bones. Uh. It was all, all together. Now there's a funny story about why we didn't have an actual pig. Um, Car had originally thought a live pig. She was going to bring well, no, but a whole pig. Do I? Yeah, the hear original this? <laughs> idea was maybe we bring a live pig to the island and kill it and put it out. Uh, and this was on the 2001 expedition. She that's what she originally wanted to do, uh, and we, and we did that trip out of a uh, stage out of American Samoa. And while we were in Samoa, Carr had some connections there, and said, "Yeah, I I, I need to buy a pig." Where do you buy a pig? And they said, "Well, you don't buy them at a store. You know, you you have to go to a family that has pigs and are willing to sell." So her friend took her to a family that had pigs, <laughs> and they explained, "Well, we're uh, from the, the the mainland U.S. and we're going to do this expedition. It's science, and we need a pig. We need it. We we." to buy a, a small pig, I mean, 150-pound pig. Mm. Okay, well, yes, uh, we have such a pig, and we will sell you this pig. Okay, it's a deal. And she was all ready to buy the pig. And we had worked out a way to keep to keep it up aboard Naya, a cage back on the dive deck, <laughs> and it was all, all set to handle this pig. Oh, gosh. B- before we conclude this deal, it has to be approved by grandfather. Oh, dear. Oh. Okay. So they bring grandfather in. These people want to buy one of our pigs, and they're going to take it aboard a boat. And and what will become of this pig? Well, we're going to kill it and Feed it see how long it takes the crabs to eat it. Our pig will not be eaten by crabs. We will not sell you a pig. 
Okay, that didn't work. And so she ended up with a lamb shoulder. Oh, <laughs> that was the best she could do in 2001. Okay, this time she said, all right, we're... we're we, she, she got, got a this, come loaded for bear. <laughs> she got this in Fiji. She she got the pig. and But the plan was, so we throw this pig skeleton with a lot of meat on it in the freezer aboard Naya. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to that? the island... They had room, you had room in the oh, freezer yeah. for yeah. hat and your food? Yeah, mm-hmm. there, there was room. They have a big freezer. Mm-hmm. When you get to the island, we're going to... Um, put surgical screws in all the bones and to each screw there will be attached a brightly colored length of string a couple yards Ah. long and uh, car will be assisted in this by our physician that was going to be on the trip uh, dr robin acker who was uh, happy to cooperate in all this so that that was the plan so we're we're going to we're going to get this pig in Fiji, and then we'll we'll put these screws, and th- and then we'll lay that out. And our cameraman, Mark Smith, will set up cameras, and we'll get time-lapse photography okay. of what happens. And then the crabs go off with bones. We'll be able to track them, the bones, with a metal detector because you've got screws in oh, them. Oh, right. And if they take them down into a den... We won't be able to see the the string sticking out. Yeah, interesting. So that was the plan. Hmm. Okay. So that was a good plan. Now, how do we how do we measure this this reef to ask this question of can uh, Earhart run an engine at the times when the credible post loss signals were heard? Well, you, what you're really doing is establishing how high above sea level the surface of the reef flat is. Right. Well, in order to know that, you have to know where sea level is physically. Mm. And then you have to transfer that data to where you want to measure the reef surface. And in this case, the only place to get good data on sea level is at the blasted landing channel. Okay. Because that's where sea level comes right up to shore because right. they they blasted away the reef. Right. So we can put a, a measuring pole mm-hmm. there and establish, okay, sea level is right here at such and such a time. Huh. And this is the range of tide that there is. So right. we, we've got that. We, we know where low tide is and we know where high tide is huh. on any particular day. And then you... Of course, that changes, but you can hindcast that once. Once you've got the baseline, you can right. you can calculate that. But now we've got to translate that to the northwest end of the island, where the airplane was landed, hmm. up beyond the North City shipwreck. Right. The trouble with that is it's around a corner from the landing channel, so we can't see the spot that we want to sight. And so you're, you're a piece of equipment won't work then? Well, the it'll work, but what we have to do is do it in two stages. It's, it's going to be a dog leg. Oh, We're going to go huh. out to a spot on the edge of the reef that we can see, oh. transfer it to there, and from there we're going to shoot the Norwich City. Oh, I see. And from there we'll get that. But we should be able to do that. 
And it sounds a little complicated. It's what's the distance? Um, about a kilometer. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I mean it's hmm. it's not a short way, but how far will that thing shoot? In in theory, the infrared will shoot that that far. Okay. In practice, it turned out to be a little different, but we'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) So we 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 had this we had this. But you thought going in the planning stages. Oh yeah. Yeah, Okay. Here's how we're going to do this. This should work. Okay. Okay. And all this stuff is on the basis of okay, we've never done this before, but we've got a lot of experience on the island, and this should work. (laughs) Okay. But the Nico 5 had an ambitious agenda. I mean, we had lots mm. of new technology, lots of things we wanted to accomplish. And how many people? Uh, I think we had 15. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And some really good new sponsor team members and, huh. and several veterans. Good team. Hmm. Good team. So we, we've got all this new technology we're counting on. Yeah. But we also know... If we know anything about Nicomararo, is that it eats technology for lunch. Yeah, if a thing can break, Nico will break it. So we'll do the best we can. And next time we'll talk about how we made out and what we found. Oh, interesting. Well, good setup. <laughs> okay. We'll see Thank what you, Rick. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.